over in Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2, if you weren't with us last Sunday, we just began our look at the book of Numbers. We're really preaching our way through the life of Moses. Of course, Moses, the one that God picked to deliver Israel after they'd been slaves for four generations and once they were delivered, then it was Moses that led them the next 40 years. So we're in Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. And I'd like us to read three verses, if we could. I'd like us to read verse 1 and 2. And then the very last verse, verse 34. Again, Numbers chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And then the very last verse, verse 34. Let's read those together, reading them out loud beginning in verse number one. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. Far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. And then verse 34. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they pitched by their standards, and so they set forward everyone after their families according to the house of their fathers. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for each one that's here. I know that some of ours couldn't come. They're not well. I pray to help them get well. Others, maybe you're away traveling. Give them safety where they're at. But Lord, I thank you for each one that is here. Help us this morning as we open up your word here in Numbers chapter 2. Lord, there's something practical in here for us to learn. I pray to help us to learn it. Direct my words. Fill me with your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I trust you'll forgive me for this cough candy. I started a cough a week ago Friday, and uh, it just started breaking up this Friday. So it took a whole week. And if I keep this candy in, we might survive. Uh, Numbers chapter 2. You know that uh, we began Numbers again last week. We found out that the book of Numbers written by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And therefore, he did write this book of Numbers. It's called Numbers because it's full of numbers. Talk about the numbers of people and numbers of tribes and talk about the numbers of leaders, numbers of soldiers. This book talks about the numbers of wars and numbers of victories talks about the numbers of casualties. So it's all about numbers. Sometimes people are critical of others that keep track with numbers. Well, God kept track with numbers. The other thing we found out last week is that many of the events that are written in the book of Numbers are also written in the very next book, the book of Deuteronomy. Pastor, why is it? Why would God repeat himself in Numbers and again in Deuteronomy? Because the book of Numbers was a running diary of what was happening to that nation as they traveled those 40 years. So Numbers is kind of like a diary. But the book of Deuteronomy was written at the end of those 40 years. So Deuteronomy looked back upon those same events. And it's amazing when you compare what was written in Numbers to what was written in Deuteronomy, sometimes hindsight is 2020. Sometimes we look back on our life and say, boy, that was a mistake, or that was the greatest decision I ever made. And so that's why Numbers and Deuteronomy record many of the same things. But Deuteronomy was written after. You see, a preacher, what are we looking at today? Well, today we're here in Numbers chapter 2, and this whole chapter is really giving God's blueprint for how this nation of Israel, as they travel these next 40 years, how they're supposed to set up their camp. So it wasn't just supposed to be a free-for-all, do what you feel like doing, wherever you want to set up your tent, that's perfectly fine. God, in Numbers chapter 2, made it very clear exactly where he wanted them to be. So we might call it God's blueprint, and, uh, you know, I have to be honest, I should be. It wouldn't be the most interesting chapter in all the Bible to read. Now, some, to some people that sounds sacrilegious. Pastor, how could you say? Because it's just the reality of it. There are some chapters in the Bible that we read, you're on the edge of your seat as you read it, especially if it's the first time you read it. 
There are some other chapters where it's like, just let's get through this thing. That's Numbers chapter 2. But having said that, uh, you know, as we look here in Numbers chapter 2, it's amazing. Uh, I'm going to give you three practical truths that we learn from Numbers chapter number 2. And uh, God knew that if every Jew took these three things to heart, that they would have a happy life. And you know, I think that God knows, as you and I read Numbers 2, if we will take these things to heart, then we will have a happy life. Now, as soon as I say that, and I pastored for a long time, there's inevitably somebody that's going to say, Pastor, is having a happy life, is that even something that Christians are supposed to have? Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, let me say this, and I'll say it again. I think the happiest people on this world ought to be a born-again child of God. Why? Because we know where we're going when this life is over. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not worried about what this world will throw at you as far as a curveball. Because when the game of this life is all over, because you've trusted Jesus Christ, heaven is settled. You know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. Now, if you're not saved, say, preacher, I'm counting on attending a church. Church won't get you into heaven. Pastor, I'm, a, I'm counting on living a good life. Living a good life won't gain you entrance into heaven. It's only trusting Christ. And so uh, I think that if you have trusted Christ by the very fact that heaven is settled for you, you ought to be the happiest person that's on this world. You know, again, some struggle with this idea of Christians being happy, Christians having fun. I mean, years ago, I don't know how many here were there, but uh, years ago we had a pastor from Ohio. His name is Alan Jones. Anyone remember Alan Jones? Yes, okay, so some did. Alan Jones, I, I think when God made him, God put a smile upside down because it was really difficult to detect when Alan Jones was happy. And I would say that to his face. In fact, I probably have said that to his face. And so you're welcome to call him. Pastor Carlson said this. He said, yeah, I, I understand that. But I remember he was preaching for us, and uh, I was making some announcements before that particular revival night. And I said, folks, this coming Friday night, our teens are going to have a teen activity. If you're a teen, you need to come because they're going to have fun. That did not sit well with Pastor Jones. In fact, it didn't sit so well that he lifted up his voice right there in the service. He said, Brother Carlson, do you understand that the word fun is nowhere in the Bible? I don't think that fun is something Christians should look at. <laughs> and all kinds of things came to mind. I was a gentleman. I said nothing, just smile. I said, so if you're a teen, you come Friday night. When we got back to our house, because he and his wife were staying at our house, when we got back to our house, I said, uh, Brother Jones, have you ever read Zechariah chapter 8? He said, well, Brother Carlson, I'm sure I've read that many times. I said, Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 5, the chapter is talking about the millennium. The chapter is talking about when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and for 1,000 years rules and reigns. He rules with a rod of iron so he could snap any rebellion. He said, yes, Brother Carlson, I'm familiar with the millennium. I said, in Zechariah chapter 8, and I open it up, it says, And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. That's the millennium. Now I said, Brother Jones, if it was so wrong to have fun, and if it was so wrong to play, I said, don't you think the Lord's going to stop that? And he looked at me, believe it or not, he, he created a smile. Listen, I think the Christian life should be the happiest life there is to live. And I'm going to suggest to you that in Numbers chapter 2, what would seem from the surface to be a very boring chapter, are three hints on how they were going to have a happy life and how you and I can have a happy life. If you're taking notes, I know that many of our people do. My title is God's Plan for Enjoying a Happy Life. Well, Brother Carlson, if you knew the trouble that I was presently going through, then you would excuse me at least from having a happy life. 
God wouldn't. You know, it says over there in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. You can be happy even under opposition. Do you know what it says in 1 Peter chapter number 4 and verse 14? If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. I don't think, folks, there's an excuse for a born-again child of God not to be happy. It says over there in Psalm 144, verse 15, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. If God is your Lord, you have every reason to be happy. It says in Psalm 146, 5, happy is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. We read in Proverbs 14, 21, he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And Jesus there in John chapter 13, Jesus said to his disciples, if you know these things, he's just painted what a Christian life should be like. He said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So again, I'd like to preach on this title, God's Plan for Enjoying a Happy Life. Look there, if you would, Numbers chapter 2. And beginning again in verse number 1, if you'd follow verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, notice verse 2, because this is the very first of God's plan. Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. Do you know, up until this point in the nation of Israel, they had been for four generations slaves in Egypt. And you will hunt hard, and I think you'll be ineffective at the end of the hunt. While they were slaves in Egypt for four generations, there is basically no mention whatsoever of Israel except the fact that it was just a mob of people. That was in their bondage. Do you know when you move forward to Moses delivering Israel from Egypt, we know that Pharaoh, finally after that 10th plague, Pharaoh said to Moses, get your people out of here and get them out of here tonight. So as Israel is fleeing from that bondage in Egypt, if I could say it again, it is like there is just a mass of Jewish people that are on the run. And you say, well, Pastor, how big is this mass? We learned last week that uh, of the Jewish soldiers that were taken by census, there were 603,550 male Jews over the age of 20. So if you add that to that number, wives, if you add to that, there were easily two million Jews that left Egypt there in Exodus chapter 13. And yet as they left en masse, it was just like there was just a mob of people that were leaving. We know that they came to the Red Sea and they crossed it. There is no delineation as they crossed it about the various tribes and where they were situated. It, it was just a mass of people. When they came to Mount Sinai, and you, if, if, if you've learned it yet, they were at the base of Mount Sinai for a year. And it, it's almost like when they got to the base of Mount Sinai and, and Moses said, we're going to be here for a while. It, it's kind of like everybody raced to find a spot where they could set up their tent and that would be their temporary home. I'm saying until you get to Numbers chapter 2, it, it, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of people just doing what was convenient for them to do. And God in heaven said, that's not the recipe for a happy life. And so God here in Numbers chapter 2 and verse number 2, he said, from now on, he said, what's going to be important in your lives is that you set up that tent, and that tent is your family, and it's going to be important how your family is conducted. If, if you're writing things down, the very first of God's plan for enjoying a happy life, it begins with the priority of the home. It begins with the priority of the home. 
up to this point, it was just 2 million Jewish people. But now he's going to say for these next years that these wander, and they're going to wander for 39 more years. He said, you want to be a happy life? Make your home important. I think you understand when I say, for many people in this world, their home is really just three things. Their home is a motel where they can sleep for night. Their home is a restaurant where they can find three meals a day to eat. And their home is little more than a laundromat where they can drop off their dirty clothes and get them cleaned. I'm saying for many in this world, they do not cherish their home. We're not talking about the house, we're talking about a home. And I'm saying to you that maybe it was like that for the nation of Israel that they just set up their tent where it was convenient and, and, and they just pressed on in their life. But now God is giving them his blueprint so that they would have a happy life. And he's saying the first detail of a happy life is the priority of your home. You're a Christian this morning. Your home ought to be very important. If God blesses you with children, how you raise those children in your home is very important to God. I know that the world is devaluating the home. I know that there is a notion out there that children are raised by, they used to say this, children are raised by a village. How many of you ever heard that kind of statement? I think Hillary Clinton was responsible for that notion. So it, it, her, her press in that was, you don't need a home, you don't need a family, a, a village raises a child, that's nonsense. A home raises a child. And so here God is saying to this nation, as they're just going to begin that next 39 years of traveling, he said, if you want to have a happy life, it begins with a priority of a home. Uh, do you know our homes are supposed to be where we gain an education? It's in the home where we're taught lifelong lessons while growing up in that home. Uh, not only in the home we gain an education, in the home we know protection. Do you know what it ought to be that when those of our families step inside the doors of the home and shut that door, they ought to know that they're safe in that home. They ought to know that they're protected in that home, that they're sheltered from the vices and lures of the world. Our home ought to be where they are anchored in salvation. Folks, our, ch our children ought to learn about salvation in our home. Sure, they'll learn it when they go to a Sunday school. Certainly, they'll hear about it when they go to a church. But long before they ever hear about salvation in a church or in a Sunday school, they ought to hear about that at home. I'm saying the home is so important. It might not have been that big of a deal up until Numbers chapter 2. Moses is saying, you want a happy life. You need to place a priority on your home. Again, it's in the home where we're to learn our limitations. As parents, we teach our children yes and no. You can't do that, and yes, you should do that. The limitations are learned in the home. It's in the home where we receive correction. When we don't do what we're supposed to do, or we do what we're not supposed to, there is a correcting part that's there. It's in the home where we ought to learn a vocation. Our, our children ought to learn our work. Uh, Jesus learned the uh, occupation of carpentry in his home. And so it's in a home where we learn a vocation. It's in, her, uh, in a home where we learn to pay commission. I, I think this, and you might take issue with this, but that's fine. When you preach, you can preach different. I think as our children become teens and as they get their jobs but still live at home, I think that there is a responsibility that they ought to begin to take on of the expenses, even at home. You say, well, it's not their home, it's the parents' home. You're still living in that home, and you're still you know, eating the food, and you're still consuming the air conditioning, and you're still, uh, I'm, I'm saying that, that that's all part of responsibility. I, my, my parents taught me to give a tithe to the Lord's work. That's 10%. And then my parents taught me that after I gave a tithe to the house of God, that I had to give a tithe to them. Now, that's when I had a job. And I thought, this is highway robbery. They're stealing from me. 
How dare, if they keep this up, I'm moving out my own. And so, sure enough, one day I decided it was time for me to move out on my own. I waited till I got married, wise young man. And, uh, you know, uh, when I got married, and that was just less than a year before I, I, uh, we came here, and, but uh, at, at the wedding reception, my dad got up there, and he, you know, I'm going to believe this, but he had a framed toilet paper holder that it had a roll of toilet paper on it. And you say, well, that's kind of an odd thing to give at a wedding reception. He said this, he said, I know my son thought it was highway robbery that he had to pay 10% of his income first to God, another 10% to the home just to help with the expenses. And I know we think that we just stole so much from him. He said, really, oh, son, oh, and he looked at me, he said, son, all you paid for was the paperwork of our house. And that was his toilet paper. Now, you know it's true when you still are at home, if you don't have to pay anything for it, it's pretty easy to complain. Why are we eating no-name ketchup? We should be eating Heinz ketchup. Why are we eating no-name mustard? Well, I don't think you should have mustard at all. I mean, uh, but, uh, but why aren't we eating French's mustard? And, and why are we, listen, when you're on your own and you start paying for everything, you'll begin to appreciate what you had when you were still back at home. I'm saying all those things are learned in the home. And God said in Numbers 2, it might be up to now that everything was just kind of a free-for-all. But I want you to get back to the priority of your home. Is your home important to you? Is the fact that it flourishes, is the fact that it functions properly, is all that important to you? Look again, verse number 2. God is saying this to Moses and Aaron to say to this nation, every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. That's a home. And he said, I want you to understand how important your home is. What a blessing it's, it's been for me to grow up in a strong and a scriptural home. And it was much more than a place to sleep and eat and wash clothes. Do you know when a person's home life breaks down, is there any wonder why a nation unravels? At the very opening of God's plan for Israel to enjoy a happy life, God emphasized the home. Dad and Mom, what kind of home have you got? Is there structure in your home? Is there character that's expected? Is there correction when it's needed? Does it emphasize God and good? Are they taught in the home how to love? Sometimes how to let go. All those things need to be in the home. And what's happened is there's so many distractions in the home. People are so distracted by Hollywood and sports and all that stuff. While their children that are still in their home are being neglected. Pastor, what is God's blueprint? What is God's plan for living a happy life? It began by putting a priority on the home. Is there that kind of priority? Lot. Over there in the Old Testament, we won't turn to it. But Lot had four walls and a roof. He had a home. Didn't have a very good home, though. Before it was all done, he lost his wife, he lost his children. We know that Saul, Saul had a wonderful home. Saul was a king. Saul lived in a palace. I imagine Saul's was, uh, home was much nicer than Lot. Yet we know that uh, there was such a bitterness and hatred in Saul's home. How many times did he pick up a javelin and try to throw it at his son, Jonathan, or his son-in-law, David? Not really a great home. We know even Samuel. Samuel had a home. But somehow in the process of that home, uh, he, he lost his boys. And I'm saying to you, uh, you know, think about this. When God brings a child into the world, God doesn't set that child just on a doorstep somewhere and say, I hope you make it. God puts every child into a family. And God puts every child into a home. And if God has blessed you with a child, with an infant, you have a tremendous responsibility because how you train that child in the earliest years of their life in many ways will determine what they'll do the rest of their life. But preacher, my, my home's not like that. Pastor, I'm afraid my home is not a very happy home. Preacher, I'm afraid that my, my, my marriage isn't a very content one. 
could I say this? You might not be able to change him. You might not be able to change her. But you can change yourself. And you can make your home a happy home. It says this in Proverbs 14, verse 1, Every wise woman buildeth her house. Ladies, by your words, you can build your house. Or, by your words, you can tear down your home. You know, by your countenance. Could I give you a little hand? You say, preacher, my heart is broken. Don't let your face know that. Your family needs to see a joy there. Your family needs to see a satisfaction there. Your family needs to see a happiness on your face. And do you know that when we as parents smile into our children's lives with a smile, what a difference that'll make. But if it's a poochy lip, if that's all that they see, it says, every wise woman buildeth her house. But you know the rest of that verse there in Proverbs 14, 1, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. I'm saying, first of all, God's blueprint for the nation of Israel. You want to have a happy life? God says it begins with the priority of the home. But I give you a second thing, and it's also found there in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 2. Numbers chapter 2 and verse 2, God said to Moses and Aaron, they said to the nation of Israel, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. Far, uh, notice this, far about the tabernacle, sorry, far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. Do you know the key word in that last part is about? When they set up their tents, they were to set those tents all about the tabernacle. If, if you remember, Moses was to build this tabernacle. And that tabernacle really was like a tent. But that tent is where God came to meet God's people. And you know, as when they set up that tabernacle, then what they were told is all the tents of Israel, they're supposed to all be set up around this tabernacle. It used a boat. If there were two million Jews, and I'm guessing, we're not told, if every Jewish family had five, that'd only be three children, and I think those Jewish families are probably bigger than that, but if every Jewish family had five people in that family, you take two million Jews and divide it by five people per family, folks, that's 400,000 tents. That's a lot of tents. And so God said to Moses, Moses, when you set up the tabernacle, I want you to have all of these Jewish people set up their tents around that tabernacle. I think that would have looked like a strange thing. I think if some foreigner heard about this nation, heard about all the victories as Israel continued their travels, and it seems that they were victorious over every enemy, I'm sure that there were foreigners that said, I want to go look at this fighting nation. And as that foreigner traveled to come where Israel was, and maybe as they climbed their way up that last mountain to get a good perspective of this nation, what they noticed was something strange. All of the tents of that nation of Israel were all set up with all of their front doors, call them flaps, all of their front doors were all facing toward this tabernacle. Folks, that had to be an odd thing. And as that foreigner from that mountaintop perspective, not only would he notice that all of those front tent flaps facing toward this tabernacle, but he noticed that above this tabernacle, during the daytime, there was a pillar of cloud and at the night time, there was a pillar of fire. And he would notice that throughout the day, 
all of those Jewish people, everything that they did seemed to be centered around that tabernacle. A strange thing. Could I say, secondly, the second part of God's blueprint for a happy life continues with the central place that we give to God's house. A tabernacle is God's house. You know, God said, when you set up your life, not only do you need to give a high priority to your home, but you need to give a central place to God's house. Just think about this. Now, two million people, 400,000 tents. Do you know was that Jew, as he came out of that tent first thing in the morning, as he got out the front flap of that tent and stretched, do you know the first thing he saw? Well, if his tent was close enough to that, he saw the house of God. That was the very first thing that he saw. That's what started his day. You say, well, preacher, I'm sure all the tents weren't in the front row. What if they were back a half a mile? Even if they were back a half a mile when they came out the front flap of their house. Do you know what they saw? They saw in the daytime a pillar of fire. And at nighttime, do you know the very last thing that they looked at before they went into the tent to say goodnight? If their tent was near the front, they saw the house of God. And if their tent was farther back, they saw this pillar of fire. Do you get the idea that as far as God was concerned, that tabernacle was to be a focal point of their life? Now, folks, I'm not telling you that you ought to buy a piece of property across from the church and put your church door this way. Someone is bound to start that story. So I beat you to it and I started it. I'm not saying you have to do that. But I'm saying, why would God say it was so important that they put all of their tents about this house of God? Because to God it was important. Because to God that was to be the central part of their life. Preacher, why is it that for so many people in this world, boy, life is just a mess. Could I suggest to you from verse number two that their life is no longer focused around the house of God? It's not focused around the house of God or the God of the house. And somehow people in their lives have gotten so busy with what they do, they no longer go to church. They no longer hear the preaching. They no longer have the word of God that given instruction to them. God said, you want a happy life? Church is a big deal. You've got to know that two million Jews, there was somebody that didn't like them. Can you, I, I, I've written down, and I know it's all Carl's knowledge, I understand that. Can't you imagine Aunt Gertie? Aunt Gertie says to her husband, honey, but I want us to put the front door toward the mountains. I'd like to look at the mountains every day. Could you imagine somebody else? This is Aunt B. Aunt B says, you know, dear, I'd like us to face our front door toward the rippling Red Sea. And if Aunt Gertie and Aunt B said those things, their husbands, if they had good sense, said, honey, what we want is really secondary to what God wants. Could I suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons that your life is going better than so many extended family that you know is the house of God is still important in your life. And you watch what happens in a person's life when the house of God gets bumped by anything and everything else. Preacher, I would have been at church on Sunday, but that was the Super Bowl Sunday. So, tape it. Be in church. Pastor, I sure would have come, but you know what? That was when the Wimbledon Classic was on. And I just can't miss the big tennis classic. You can tape it. Be in church. Listen, Wimbledon is not going to get you through the crises of your life. And what happens in the Super Bowl is likely when your team doesn't win, it's going to create a bigger crisis in your life. Church will help you get through those things. 
Say, Pastor, I think that you're making a bigger deal. Not a bigger deal than God. God said to them, when you set up your tents, when you set up your homes, when you set up your families, the focal point of that home is God to be the house of God. I'm saying to you, uh, we've seen first God's plan for enjoying a happy life first begins with the priority of the home. And secondly, it continues with the central place that we give to God's house. Do you know from Numbers 2 onward, a day didn't go by that those Jews weren't reminded about God because they saw the sanctuary of God and they heard the songs of God. And they watched the sacrifices of God. And they watched the servants of God. I'm saying that, well, preacher, do you suppose every Jew is excited that, about that? Maybe not. But, well, pastor, you know, uh, how could you possibly stay happy? Forty uh, years, day after day, staring at the same thing. Well, if God has only become a thing in your life, of course you won't be happy. But if God is your all in all, it makes a difference. You know, for some people, they have to be dragged to church. For some people, they have to be dragged away from church. For some people, it's odd if they don't show up for church. For other people, it's odd if they do show up for church. It's all the same place but it's our attitude about that same place. How could two million Jews possibly be fed for 40 years, not going one day without food? Because they made God and the house of God the center of their life. Pastor, how is it that two million Jews could possibly have water provided for 40 years without never a day of thirst because God and the house of God were central in their lives? Pastor, how is it that Jews for 40 years could win battle after battle? How could they overcome sickness and every disease? Because God is the center. Now, you've heard the verse before. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If God's given the first, if God's given the priority, God will take care of all the rest of that. But if God has slid to the back burner, well, and you're on your own. And I'm afraid there's a lot of folks that are on their own, and life is kind of crumbling. I give you a third thing. I said there were three. I give you the last one. Look there in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 34. Numbers chapter 2 and verse 34, the Bible says, And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they pitched by their standards, and so they set forward everyone after their families according to the house of their fathers. Pastor, we have just jumped over 30 verses of Numbers 2. What did we miss? I mean, I can tell you what we missed in two minutes. After God said that he wanted, first of all, home to be important. After secondly, he's saying that I want you to have all of those tents placed about the tabernacle. Now what he says from verse number 3 all the way to the end of verse 33, he's now telling them by their tribes. We know there were 12 tribes. So he's saying the tribe of Judah. I want them, if this is the tabernacle, I want them to be on the east side, that corner. And next to Judah, we won't read it, so you'll have to take my word for it again, right? On the east side, it was Judah. And next to them was the tribe of Issachar. And next to them was the tribe of Zebulun. That was the east side. On the south side, it was first the tribe of Reuben, then the tribe of Simeon, then the tribe of Gad. On the west side, there was a tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Benjamin. And on the north side, there was a tribe of Dan and there was a tribe of Asher and there was a tribe of Naphtali. So God didn't even leave that up to chance. God said, this is exactly where I want you to locate not just locate somewhere around the house of God. He gave them the exact spot. And you know, the big question after the end of verse 33 is, are they going to do it? Or are they going to complain about it? 
And folks, that's always the question. Our trouble in our Christian life most times is not that we don't know what to do. Most times the Bible has already been crystal clear. Most times we already know what we're supposed to do. The big question is, are we going to do it? And so after God gives this plan, this blueprint, to Moses and Aaron, and Moses says to that nation, if you're from Judah's tribe, this is where you set up. And if you're from Gad's tribe, you are right next door. And if you are, and I don't have them memorized, but he just, he told them, this is where God is going to put you. Then Moses kind of bracing himself. Are they going to do it? Or are they not going to do it? Well, the answer to that is verse 34. We just read it, but let's read it again. Numbers chapter 2 and verse 34. Bible says, And the children of Israel did, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they pitched by their standards, and so they set forward, and everyone after their families, according to the house of their fathers, they said, Lord, if this is where you placed us, this is where we'll be. If this is where you want us, this is where we'll be. God, if this is your choice for our life, is exactly where we're going to set up our tent. Could I give you the third thing? God's plan for enjoying a happy life is conditional upon being perfectly satisfied where God puts you. Again, God's, uh, God's plan for enjoying a happy life is conditional upon being perfectly satisfied where God puts you. Uh, they said, this is where God wants us, we'll do it. You know, it's, it's human nature to look over our fence and look at the next door neighbor. And say, Boy, that sure looks like greener grass. It might be artificial turf. Don't be fooled. But if you are where God puts you, you can live a happy life. It says that day that they all said, we'll do it. They were satisfied. And folks, if you want to be happy in this life, instead of looking at what somebody else has got, accept the fact that God gave you what you've got. Just be satisfied. We sang that song during the service, Satisfied. All my life long I have panted for the things and there's so many people that are just not satisfied with what God has given them. That is the secret. Didn't Paul say, I've learned in whatsoever estate I am therewith to be content? Now think about that. Paul said it, the great apostle Paul, the man that wrote half the New Testament. Paul says, I have learned. That means it didn't come automatic. I think that even in Paul's life, there were times where he looked at his circumstances and kind of turned a scowl up to God. But he said, I've learned. He said, since that, I've learned. I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Folks, that is the third secret to a happy life. Just be content with what you've got. Just be happy with what you've got. Instead of looking at what somebody else has and wishing that you just had what they had, again, I'm saying to you the big question that was answered by that very last verse is were they going to do what God told them to do? Too many people live in the land of if only. If only I had better health. If only I had more money. If only I, had, uh, if only I was married. Maybe there are some that are saying if only I wasn't married. I, if only I had a nicer house, if only my car uh, was paid for, if only I lived in a warmer climate, if only I had more friends. Folks, if there is an if only that's brewing in your heart, I guarantee you don't have a happy life. But he said to this nation, you need to put a priority on your home. and You need to put a central place for the house of God in your life. Then you need to be perfectly satisfied. You know, uh, I remember many years ago, you can let go of numbers. Look there, if you would, Psalms, chapter 16. Psalms in the very middle of the Bible. 
I think that probably 40 years ago, I heard a preacher give an illustration that I'm going to give you about being satisfied. You know, there in Psalms chapter number 16, David, of course, wrote this psalm. It says that right at the front. It's a Mitchum of David. And so David wrote this, and David's writing is, David would be about 1,000, 1,020 B.C. Look there, if you would, in Psalm chapter 16 and verse number 6. Psalm chapter 16, verse 6, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. You know what David is referring to when the nation of Israel, after they wandered for 40 years, they entered into Canaan. They crossed that Jordan and they entered in the Promised Land. Before they entered in, Moses had already clearly described where the Reubenites would live. He gave the parameters for Reuben. He gave different parameters for the tribe of Asher. All of Asherites would live, these are the parameters. And he gave uh, different parameters for the tribe of Benjamin. So all of the tribes, they already, as they crossed into that promise, they already knew as a tribe where they were going to live. But you know the individual families in each tribe didn't know where they were going to live. So what they would do is when that tribe would conquer all of their land, then the head of that tribe, and again, this is this preacher's illustration. But the head of that tribe, not knowing which family would get which portion, the head of that tribe picked up some stones. And they're all different. None of the stones were the same. And I know they didn't have Bic markers back then. I fully understand that. But, but he would take his Bic marker that hadn't been invented yet, and he would write on one of those stones the parameters for a family. He might say it goes up to this creek and it goes 100 yards over from there and goes to that big double oak tree. And, and so he'd, he'd write that on a stone. And then he'd pick that beautiful stone and he'd write on that, this is all rocky territory. None of it is tillable. Going to take much work to gain anything there. Then he'd, he'd take something that was really unbecoming and he'd say, this has water on three sides. It's lush land. And so he would go through all of those stones. And once he had written something on all those stones, he'd have the head of each family of the tribe. And he'd say, now, we need to decide who gets what. Well, if, if he, with all of his writing, if he had walked up to one of the heads of their family and said, what would you like your inheritance to be? Well, if this guy's smart and this guy's smart, he'd say, well, let me, hold on, let me. No, I don't want that one. No, I don't want that one. Yeah, no, that one. I want that one. But, you know, that's not how he gave out those allotments. Instead, the, this preacher said, and again, it's his illustration, I'm just stealing it. This preacher said that people weren't given the opportunity to know exactly the details of their lot. He said that head of that tribe put all of those different allotments in a bag. Well, if those men had been paying close attention, some of the nicest stones had some of the worst details to it. And so we had that head of that family reach in there and he didn't even know what he was going to get. He really had no control. He couldn't pick. And as he took that out, before he even looked at it, he'd look up to God and he'd say, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Oh, you haven't even looked at it yet. How could you say you've got a good lot? You don't even know the description of your lot. Could I suggest he could say that because of verse 5? Look there in Psalm chapter 106, sorry, Psalm chapter 
yes, 106, or sorry, Psalm chapter 16, and verse number 5. He said, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Stop right there. He said, because my joy doesn't rest upon this. It doesn't matter what's in my hand. The Lord's my inheritance. As long as I have God, it doesn't matter what this looks like. If your happiness hinges on what you have, you'll never be happy very long. But if your happiness rests upon the reality that if you're saved, you've got God, That's a step toward a happy life. Look at the second part of verse 5. Again, Psalm 16 and verse 5. Not only said the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and my cup thou maintainest my lot. Hold on a minute. He didn't say I'm going to maintain my lot. He hadn't even looked at it yet. He said, God, whatever I've got, I'm trusting you to help me. Preacher, I want a happy life. Well, you're going to have to make a priority of your home. Preacher, I want a happy life. And you're going to have to put in the center of that life God and the house of God. Preacher, I'd like a happy life. Then whether that pictures your life or whether that pictures your life or whether that, it doesn't matter what your details of your life. If you're saying, God, I've got you. God, I just trust you that you will carry me through. Whether it's this, or whether it's this, or whether it's this. Are you satisfied? Too many Christians want to trade what they've got for anything else. They want to trade away their house, trade away their car, trade away their husband, their wife, their children. They want to trade their job. If I could just get a different job, if I could just make more, none of that will make you happy. It's only God that will make you happy. And it's only trusting God to carry you through how to have a happy life.